0: Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host Jack Perks and today I have got John Bailey with me. This is for a series of podcasts I'm running all month all to do with angling and fish in aid of the film that I'm crowdfunding for Britain's Hidden Fishes which is going to be an hour-long film on marine and freshwater fish showcasing their natural history. Now John has written more books than I can count on angling and has been writing for Angler's Mail for 45 years, which sadly stopped publishing last year. He's traveled all over the world catching fish and is an avid river conservationist. He's appeared on many fishing TV programs, including Mr. Crabtree Goes Fishing, which is where I know John from as I was a cameraman on that series. And recently he's become the angling consultant for the smash hit series Mortimer and White House gone fishing. So I couldn't wait to catch up with John because it's been years since we've had a good chat. Here's how we got on. Well John, thanks for joining me.
1: Yes, technology leaves me aghast, Jack, <laughs> but here I am after have after have problems with the mute button and goodness knows what, but we seem to have got it together.
0: Have you used Zoom before? Are you a Zoom
1: virgin? Uh, or are you... I am I, um, I think this is my fourth. So Okay. Um, Okay. Not a complete version when it comes no, to No, some,
0: some prior experience.
1: A little. <laughs> a stickleback <laughs> uh, yeah. There
0: we go. Well, how you doing? It's been, I'm trying to think the last time I saw you is longer than I care to remember. It would have probably been on a Crabtree shoot or might have been the Pursuit at the time, which was more or less Crabtree, but... I,
1: I yeah. think it was probably Pursuit, wasn't it? But God, how long ago is that? It must be five, some,
0: six? Something like that, yeah yeah it was
1: would it would it have been could it have been that weird one in france that we did
0: yeah uh... that's that's one way of putting it wasn't it yes i think it was <laughs> yeah yeah when we we did um a few lakes didn't we yeah there was that that lake with that chap in his little hut next to it and there was yeah. that one and i think oh and there was the the i can't remember the name of the lake but they, I remember there was very kind of nice outdoor seating area, and there was a pool and lots of lavender. Is all I remember of the, the fishing.
1: That was quite pleasant, actually. Yeah,
0: it? it was. Um, it was. It was. good. But
1: <laughs> I suppose for both of us, it was a learning experience, wasn't it? <laughs> it was,
0: and I'll come and I'll will circle back round to, to, to that okay, experience later on. I but I follow. Yeah but what I'll start with if I remember rightly you you were a teacher is that is that right you started off as a teacher
1: I I
0: was after after
1: leaving uni Jack I messed around for a couple of years then I went and did a post grad teaching course at UEA. okay and I actually taught for about 12 14 years and ended up as a head of sixth form at a boys' public school in Norwich and thoroughly enjoyed it. I I, I mean, my problem was that I enjoyed it so much in many ways that it was a very difficult job to leave and I could probably have done with leaving it a bit earlier. But hey, you know, that's life.
0: Yeah. So how do you get from being a a teacher then to a professional angler? Because I guess it it wasn't an overnight thing, was it? It was gradual, I'm guessing.
1: No, I mean, I, I, I was writing articles for, for example, The Angler's Mail, was I at university still? Oh, just after leaving university, my first books were published sort of mid-80s. And so by about eighty-eight, 89, I'd got probably four or five, six books in print. And of course, they were, that was an age when books sold big numbers. And I think in 1988, it got to the stage, Jack, where I was making as much money from the books as I was from the teaching. And then I made a film called Casting for Gold with Paul Boot in India. I couldn't do that and continue with teaching, so it was one or the other, and it was that really that gave me the push, got me out of teaching into whatever it is I do now. You see,
0: I <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned about magazines and books, because obviously recently, very sadly, Angler's Mail uh, stock, which you were involved with for I think 45 oh, years or something oh, like my. That.
1: Life Jack I mean it was a <laughs> body blow to me, um, yeah, I think my first article was seventy four so wow. you do the maths, as they say you know yeah. was, uh, I mean apart from anything else it, it, it really weirdly writing a um, writing a weekly weekly column for years sort of shaped the pattern of my fishing. So I would wake up, say, on a, on a Saturday or a Sunday and think, right, this week I am going to do this. But I very much had in mind writing the article the next Sunday for the Angler's Mail. So it was the Angler's Mail that in many ways defined what
0: I did. And of course, with angling books and, and magazines, do you think they're, they're kind of doomed in today's day and age? Or is there still space for them to flourish?
1: Uh, um <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I think the only good thing that might've come out of this is that we have seen over the last 15, 20 years, quite a flowering of small independent book publishers. And I, I, think, a lot of, I think a lot of people, anglers, bird watchers, just you know, human beings have a book in them. And I think that this proliferation of small publishing houses, has actually given a voice to people that have that book in them, have now the opportunity, and actually produce something incredibly worthwhile. You, you know, uh, Peter Rolf has written more than one book, but Crock of Gold is a perfect example of, of a magnificent book that pro- probably would not have seen the light of day back in the 80s and the 90s with the big publishing companies. So so from that point of view, there's a bit of a, a sort of silver lining, I guess. Yeah
0: yeah i guess kind of a more diversity of writers and giving a chance yeah 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 i mean i mean to be quite honest
1: i wasn't particularly proud of a lot of the things i wrote in the 90s because i'd left teaching i wanted a middle-class lifestyle to be honest and i wrote a lot of books that you know quite honestly hand on heart i'm very honest about stuff these days they were pot boilers and and you know that watered down in many ways the reputation i had but still you know you make these decisions and you have a living to make and
0: that's it you've got to pay the bills and keep the lights on somehow john haven't you <laughs> <laughs> and and obviously we kind of touched on crabtree so that's how we we know each other that you were the presenter and that and i was one of the one of the cameramen so i wondered did you have a highlight or i won't say hello but did you have a highlight of working on that series <laughs>
1: There were two series, of course, in all we did, 12 programmes. I think you came in on the second series. Oh, I was I, on the second one, yeah. I mean, I I look back on that, really, Jack, as a, as a sort of an opportunity lost big time. I mean, I think the first series, we were finding our way. By episode three, four, five, six, we knew a little bit more about what we were doing. I think it was good having the spread of kids. We had six lads, I think, and two girls in it, uh, sisters. The second series, of course, we did with just James Buckley. And in many ways, I think that worked better because James was, and certainly is, an exceptional young man. Then, I mean, he was a cracking kid. He was a great angler. And I think probably it allowed a bit of a bond to build up between us rather than the previous series where it was really just two days shooting and that was the end of that. But you know you know the sort of background to the Crabtree production. You know how it was funded and operated and so on. And I sometimes look back. I mean, I'm three times your age. I can sometimes look back on my life and think, I don't regret anything, but I just wish that things had been a little bit different around the Crabtree um, scenario. I think we missed we missed a chance there, I think, to have done something that could and should perhaps have gained more traction, probably.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I, I should also mention for people that don't know what Crabtree is, it's it's a kind of a well-known comic strip to do with uh mr crabtree the angler and then his, and his son i think it was his son was it his son or, or... It, was his son, it was yeah, yeah. Well, and then yeah. the i the idea of the series that we did is that a young a young angler a child would go out with john and john would would kind of show them the ropes on how to to catch fish was the premise of that um, but yeah i mean certainly i can only speak from the second season but you know carp fishing in france is not it's not particularly crabtree in you know uh, but i understand as well is it very easy for me to criticize but then uh, hats off to the production for getting the money together but that often meant sponsorship and then that means you've got to plug tackle and you've got to plug venues that don't necessarily it's a, it's, it's a very difficult one it, you know, it, it, it wasn't necessarily traditional Crabtree but then how do you get it off the ground it's, it's a hard one isn't it
1: uh, I mean it goes back Jack to that conversation we had about books and television has completely changed over the, what, 30 years I've been involved with it. And so I'm not blaming the Crabtree production team in any way, shape or form about it. No, no, no. But of course, until probably, I'm going to pick a date of around 2004, 2005, it was considerably more easy to get a television programme made. I mean, we are now at the stage where... Um, really the only people to pay for content are probably BBC One, BBC Two, and probably ITV. Once we start with Channel 4, Channel 5, as you're well aware, it's not easy to get funding, even if you can. And then once you start with all the myriad satellite um, channels, they expect you to turn up with a ready-made programme. They're not Mm -hmm. going to give you any money for these things. And they might not even pay you if they buy them and air them. And they might even want you to pay to have them aired. So really, the the, the, the era when you could actually make a decent programme about anything, you know, about tracking water bowls or whatever if you can't get it on bbc1 bbc2 or itv then really you are going to have to scrap you know scatter around looking for sponsorship of one sort or another yeah and it, it's a grim world out there
0: yeah no i definitely agree it's uh, it's is a tricky one i mean the my personal highlights for me the, the two that stood out were the there was a barn owl that went past while you were fishing which we none of us would kind of expect i don't know if you remember that it was on i think it was, a, it was on a farm pond I think you were fishing for Rudd, and then this barn owl kind of very typical Norfolk, I suppose, oh, just flew by yeah um,
1: yeah, that kind of stood yeah. out to me,
0: but in terms of the yeah. fishing, I can't remember which lake it you'll, you'll know this I, I think it's where you you fish for pike, but then you went stalking for carp, and it was me and you, everyone else was doing something else and you oh, I remember that and I you because you hurt yourself quite bad, I think you were putting on <laughs> like a brave face, but it, you did hurt yourself
1: yeah, of course. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was quite a hot day, wasn't it? It was, it was yeah. Bit bike fishing, but We decided to do a bit of pike, lure fishing. And the lake really just didn't respond at all, of course. And then we went to another lake nearby, you and I, and we found a, a, a clonking great big mirror carp, didn't mm-hmm. we, up by an inlet stream, taking bread and things off the surface. Yeah. And um, it was about an hour, I seem to think, before we actually hoodwinked it. It took a but, while. But we were on a little old landing stage weren't we and it it, it, it had collapsed <laughs> and I remember I was sort of teetering on this plank. Yeah. And, and then Lester arrived at the landing net and it was one of these <laughs> it was one of these Marx Brothers sort Ooh. of situations wasn't it. Yeah. How we got that fish in I'll never know but it, it, know. It, it was it was drama, certainly.
0: Yeah, it was Blair, Blair Witch because I, I was holding the camera <laughs> on my shoulder like, oh bloody hell, this is not what we were expecting, but it it's, it worked in the end. The reason it I did because I rewatched it. I found the DVD in a cupboard the other day. I thought, oh, and, and it was it was over thirty. I can't remember exactly how how heavy it was, but it was a good size. It's ironically probably the most Crabtree thing that happened in that series was you know a big, <laughs> a big carp on a crust of bread stalking. Was, uh, you know, that was fantastic.
1: It it, it was actually, yeah, it it was a good moment. And as you say, it was the essence of Crabtree, wasn't it? Mm. Which was really a rod, a reel, some line, a hook, and a piece of bread, and a whopping big old calf at the end of the day. Yeah, not a buzzer in sight, not a boving.
0: None of that nonsense. (laughs) Uh, d- during your career, you've visited, I think I've lifted this off your website, so sorry if it sounds like I'm reading, but 64 different countries like, in search of all manner of species. Is there any one destination that really stood out to you for its fishing?
1: Jack, as you can imagine, this is a question I get asked a fair bit, you know, off in the guise of if you had a single day left on Earth, where would you want to fish and so Yeah. Um, if we take the UK out of it, I would say the choice probably has to be uh, between India and Mongolia. I, I think probably they were the two countries more than anywhere else that really got under my skin. And, and of course I had a, a tremendous relationship with India over uh, my first journey was there in 1989 and my last was 2013. So for a quarter of a century, I went to India minimum of um, twice a year. Mongolia, I think I probably did about 14 or 15 years out of Mongolia, often for a month or two at the time. So so they were two countries that I really, truly began to bond with and completely adored. And it, it, it just sometimes, I just sometimes think, you know, uh, are those are those travelling days completely done with yeah, I guess they are, but but to go back to your question, I think it would be Mongolia or somewhere in India okay, I'm
0: guessing is that marcia in, in time is it or uh, yeah marcia in time yeah, yeah
1: time in Mongolia, great greatly landlocked salmon uh, and the quite unbelievably unique marcia in India, yeah.
0: I do. I, I keep talking to Mark Everard about Mars here and I, I bet some, somewhere down the line I'm going to get out there and, and try and film some, some Mars here in the Himalayas because that just sounds uh, phenomenal, the size of those fish.
1: I, I, th- I think probably these days, Jack, I think I think you are increasingly looking at the Himalayas. I made quite a lot of journeys to the Himalayas, but tended to take fishing groups down to the south, down to the Calgary. The um, Calvary Calgary was an easier trip. The fish. Were bigger, you know, those great humpback gold marcia were breathtaking. Um, but there are all sorts of political conservation pressures on that now, and I think probably when you, when you hit India, young man, it will be in the Himalayas, yeah, you know, to be up north, I guess.
0: Hopefully I'd like to do that. Obviously reading, you know, reading the Anglers Mail when when you're writing your your opinion piece, you showed your little kind of uh, agony art almost bit in there. So there's there's a hell of a lot of issues with with UK angling. And I wondered if there is there one particular issue that you think needs tackling the most? Is there one thing that you're like, this is something we need to address now?
1: Yeah, I guess. I mean I think I think Jack, that's why I've been not content. To have spent the last eight years almost exclusively in the UK but but it's feel it's where I feel happy to spend the rest of my career in in many ways and it's not going to be any enormous surprise to you that I I guess the thing that concerns me more than anything really is the appalling decline in the river populations of fish that we're seeing and You know, it's funny with the angler's mail, we talked about the angler's mail, and in some ways the angler's mail tended to drag me more into the coarse fish world, which wasn't really who I have been, because I I, I think if you look back over my career, I sort of fly fish as as much as I did coarse fish from the age of eight, seven or eight, and it was just very often I was dragged into the coarse fishing world, I, I've always loved coarse fishing. It wasn't a painful dragging at all. I hastened to add, but uh, I think whether it look, whether you're looking at salmon, whether you're looking at wild brown trout, whether you're looking at roach, barbel, chub, boat taste, uh, I, I think it's a very, very bleak picture. I mean, the, the, the whole problem absolutely exercises me.
0: It really yeah. does. We had um, Fergal Sharkey. I don't know if you know the work that he's been doing uh, with rivers. He okay. came on. Yeah, he came on the podcast, and they you know, the passion that he has, but also all the facts and figures. He was quoting all these things and it's like, this. You know... Oh, he's
1: extraordinary. I yeah. mean, he, he's a crackerjack, isn't yeah. he? I mean, yeah just like, oh my God, what does not this man know sort of yeah. thing. is.
0: Yeah. You couldn't make it up a, a punk rock star that now fights for, you know, rivers and things. It's quite peculiar. But yeah, he was on about the amount of raw sewage going into rivers and all kinds of horrible nasty thing. So it was which kind of segues me a little bit to my next question because I know he was on this series. So what people might not know is that you're the angling consultant for Mortimer and White House ghost fishing. So I just wondered how how did you kind of get onto that series and, and what is what was it like?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: what's it like?
1: I uh the job um came to me by happy chance. Um, I suppose one thing that counted in my favour was what I've just said to you, that I'm as much a, a game angler as a course angler. I think that I'm right in saying that Paul Whitehouse particularly asked one or two chums of mine, and they very, very uh um happily for me gave my name and I talked to Paul for a very long time on the phone we're going back now four and a half years would you believe Jack yeah and um, then I went down to meet him and Bob in London for lunch and then I went down to meet the entire team and then I I got the gig so that was about four four and a half years ago and it's it's sensational in many, 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 many ways. I mean, the, the pluses from my point of view, is that Paul, one of them, probably I'll put top of the list, is that Paul Whitehouse has become probably my best or next best friend. Um, I, I adore Paul. He's, he's just the nicest guy. Bob is great. I often sit thinking, when I'm watching the filming, I often think, Oh, my God, you know, people would pay anything to be listening to this because, believe you me, as you can guess, a lot of the banter, the best banter is banter that you couldn't possibly have on BBC Two at ten thirty on Sunday night. So that side of things is great. I think I've been involved now with something like 22, 23 episodes, and that gets me all around the country. So I get to... Sea rivers I haven't fished before, I get to talk to river keepers I've never met before, bailiffs, natural history buffs. So it, it has been absolutely fantastic for me because you can get too involved in one particular geographical area. And being with Paul and Bob has, over the last four years, really taken me all around the country, which which I've found a massive, massive benefit. It's, it, I'm just so... Please, Jack, that it's been a big hit because I think fishing I think fishing needed something that was respectable, if that's the right word, that 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 brought it back into the into the into to the wider audience. And of course all the usual things about, you know, how many anglers say, Oh, my wife loves it, she hates fishing, but you won't miss a single episode of Paul and Bob and so on. So I think it's just made it a lot more acceptable. I think there are a lot of plus points about it. But I'm I'm very proud to be part of it, tiny little part I hasten to add. Uh, The smallest cog in the big wheel, but you know, I play my part and I'm really happy to.
0: So do you think there's a reason why it's been so popular? Because I've definitely found that as well, how you've said that people who don't normally like fish, a lot of my friends are not interested in fishing at all, but they're like, oh, we like watching, you know, watching that series. So do you think there's a reason it's been so popular? I think it, I I think to a degree, Jack,
1: it's (sighs) that, Yes, I mean, obviously we can talk about the photography, which is gorgeous, and it shows the UK in, a, in, in the most beautiful light imaginable. But, you know, I, I've been asked this question a bit, uh, quite a lot over the, over the past, I've thought about it very deeply, and I think it is, it's complete and utter honesty. By that I mean, Paul and Bob are genuine mates. I think they talk about things that are genuinely close to their heart. I think they go to places that they genuinely love. They genuinely both adore fishing, although they are very different rungs on the ladder when it comes to ability. <laughs> they, there is no cheating going on. At all in the fishing site or in any aspect of the program whatsoever. So in the early days, it was very tempting for me to sort of just bunk off and come back with a six-pound chub that we could stick on Bob's hope. And you know, we've all we all know that's happened in lots and lots of fishing programs. But though but right from the word go, there was an absolute definite no to that. So all the way down the line, I just think it's a premise that's very honest. I think the filming is very honest, I think the conversations are very honest. And there's so much on TV now which I think is, is very prefabricated, which I think is very stylized. This, I think, is a real thing. I think people can identify with it. They can identify with going fishing with a real mate, sitting down, just yakking away, letting the day pass in a charming place. And I just think it's very nice, gentle, honest programming. And I'm, you know, that's my view.
0: Yeah, well, there's a couple of episodes where they don't even catch anything. And and there aren't many fishing shows where you could show it and not catch anything and it still be interesting. I think that's a testament to uh, I think, that series. I think
1: so. I, and I think, again, that goes back to the honesty. It helps the jeopardy. Are they going to catch? Are they not going to catch? I think it reinforces the honesty. And I think it reinforces um, the very absolute truthful fact that most of us do blank, probably four sessions out of 10, if we are going to proper natural wild fisheries. And I think this goes back to what we were talking about, my concern with the decline of rivers, that too many anglers now think that an overstocked carp puddle is what fishing is about. And I think Paul and Bob, in a way, have made a very, very conscious decision to go nowhere near that type of fishery. And I think what they... Have wisely done. They say, no, we're fishing the sort of places we'd have fished as a kid. And we're fishing the sort of places that fishing really is in, is in spirit and soul all about. Couldn't agree more.
0: Well, look, before we go, I'm going to do a quick fire question. So I'm just going to rattle off some favourites and you can let me know what your favourites are. <laughs> so uh, uh, what was the first fish that you caught? Stickerback. Stickle oh, rod and line, or was that in the net? Uh, net, uh, okay. Four first thing on
1: rod and line I caught genuinely, and I've never caught one since, is a frog. Oh, okay. a I can remember, oh, well, it took, it, a day day, it took a hook, it took a hook. Oh, was really, Bowman Lakes in Greater Manchester. I got a little bob float, I'd got a worm on. Uh, on a sort of pin type hook, the float went under. I died with excitement. I struck wildly, and a frog flew <laughs> over my shoulder. I've never caught a frog since. And so that was my first. Yeah, peak, anyway.
0: Well, there you go. Yeah, you've got, got to work on that one. Um, favorite fish? Which I guess you get asked all the time, but.
1: Probably roach.
0: Yeah, there's something about... What I don't get, and you might be able to explain this to me, what is this love for roach, but the rud, which is a very superficially similar fish, just doesn't seem to get the same amount of love?
1: It's a curious one, Jack, isn't it? You're right there, because a rud, after all, is a far prettier roach in terms of just one drop dead gorgeous. I mean, those... Vivid scarlet fins, oh, oh deep go. Oh. But the roach, there's just something so elementally <laughs> English about a roach. Got to be a river roach. I'm sure anybody yeah. you talk to um, says.
0: Hmm? <laughs> um, <laughs> t- time's up, John. The lights gone out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've got to put a shilling in the meter. Yeah, um, you're quite right. I mean, I, I, even people like Alan Blair, the the, the carp god from Nash. He said to me a couple of weeks ago, the only fish that really counts in this country is a two-pound river roach, and that's coming from a thirty-year-old carp god. You know, yeah. So just something about the roach, which is fundamentally, I think, what English fishermen are about. Yeah. I are.
0: No, I, but... yeah, it's it's a funny one because they they've just got this cult, haven't they, going for them? Uh, mm-hmm. Have you have you got a favourite? I mean, you're probably UK, but have you got a favourite venue?
1: Well, it's it, it's got to be the Wensum
0: in terms of.
1: Are we talking about Roach now, or are we talking? Well, we, well
0: and any, for anything really, any any kind of fishing. I guess for I guess the
1: Wensum means so much to me because I've fished it fifty odd years, and it is in my soul. I adore the River Wye equally. Um, I first fished that when I was ten, and that's a very long time ago. So I've seen probably, although I love the Hampshire Raven, I love all manner of sort of Yorkshire rivers, northern rivers. Um, me, I love them all, but, but the, <laughs> y the, Winsome, the Y and the Wens are the difficult ones to beat for me.
0: They're pretty pretty special, aren't they? Uh, and a favourite yeah. method?
1: Well, I like fly fishing. So I love nymph fishing. Okay. And I like dry fly fishing. But I guess it's got to be trotting a stick, folks.
0: Yeah, I'm with you on that. I do love trotting. There's something
1: about trotting. You know, today... I didn't fish today in honor of you. I was looking forward to this. And um, it was a beautiful, still, pewter cloud evening. There was no wind, as I've said. It was eight degrees. The river didn't have a a ruffle on it whatsoever. And it just looked a trotter's paradise, you know.
0: Um, you You should have sacked me off, John. (laughs) (laughs) could <laughs> <laughs> not do that, my best no. mate
1: um, Yeah, so it, it, probably, yeah, trotting afloat trotting
0: Okay, afloat. and uh, last question have you got an angling hero? Apart from you Apart from me, yeah <laughs>
1: um, Fred Buller Okay who was the pike maestro of the middle part of the century, pike and salmon uh, of the last century I hasten to add, not the century um, Living do you know I just don't think we're as good as they were. I just don't think modern anglers have the same gravitas. I don't know yeah. if that's I don't know if that's a reflection of society. I am really struggling to think of a modern, genuine hero. I mean, I could think about guys like Richard Walker, Fred Taylor. Fred Buller, Arthur Oglesby, Hugh Falkers. Characters I got to know late on in my life that were absolute giants. And do you know, if we're looking at the sport today, giants, I just don't know. I mean, I'm incredibly fond of a lot of anglers. I mean, Chris Yates obviously springs to mind. Chris and I were very close in the 80s and 90s. Very, very, very fond of Chris. I think he's had a huge effect. I was very close to John Wilson. Who obviously had a massive impact on fishing, but I never remotely hero worship John. So it's a difficult question, and I'm glad you answered as that. And I'm sorry my answer isn't isn't more cut and dried. And I, I feel I'm a bit disappointing. Um,
0: <laughs> no, well it was. And, I was thinking more about when you were younger as opposed to now. But I mean it, it's yeah. It, so yeah, yeah, mind
1: you, nothing wrong. There's no, nothing wrong with getting old and having heroes. Um, no. I think I think there are some admirable anglers out there. I tell you, you know, going back to Crabtree and James young James Buckley, when he's a kid to watch. I think he's got all the attributes of a great angler. I mean, he loves fishing, he's good at fishing, he understands fish, he's now working as a as a river keeper. He's he he's got that generosity of spirit. I think I think that harms a lot of anglers that they don't really and truly Share their pleasure in fishing. but I think that there there is that slight meanness in a lot of anglers that lets them down. So James, I think, is one to watch. I mean, James could become a giant, certainly.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And I'll I'll share a story that I I met up with James when he was living in London. He must have been about seventeen, I think, and he was showing me uh, the Wandle. There was a stretch of the River Wandle, and
1: um,
0: you know, beautiful little chalk stream in London, which is kind of a juxtaposition, I suppose, and. um, he was showing me the shoal of barbel and and chub and all that, and his eyes were on the river. And then these girls around about his age walked by, and they were all kind of chatting, looking at James, his ha- handsome young man. And his eyes didn't leave these barbel. <laughs> and I just thought, James, what are you? <laughs> you need to get your priorities uh, priorities. It might be different now because he's a little bit older. He might have um, forgotten the fish a little bit, but he's a fantastic angler. And he's a lovely young man, so uh, I, I couldn't agree. Yeah, yet.
1: one to watch. One to yeah. watch. I think if you're still doing these podcasts in uh, 50 years' time, I think it could well be that a lot of people you talk to will have James Buckley as a hero. Yeah, um, well, hopefully. Look, yeah, a good one you would make.
0: If I'm not six foot under, then I'll be, in 50 years' time, I'll definitely be doing it. But yeah, he's a good That's egg. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, John, it's been a pleasure to catch up with you.
1: Thank you very much. I am uh, very privileged to have talked to you, and it's, it is, as you say, a real pleasure to uh, have caught up with you, and uh, and I just hope all the uh, filming goes well. And what I do see of what you've done, I applaud. I think, I think you're doing some cracking stuff.
0: Cheers, John. Cheers, buddy, and take care. Bless you. Take care. Bye-bye. It was so nice to catch up with John, because in my industry of filmmaking, You can work with people very closely for a year, a couple of years and then you might not see them again or not see much of them. So that was genuinely lovely to catch up with John and to see that he's doing well. I'm so so pleased. John does a lot of guiding as well, so if you want to brush up on your angling knowledge or maybe just catch a fish with John, he offers services like that. And there's a link in the description where you can check out more of what John's up to. Likewise there's also a link to the crowdfunding page for Britain's Hidden Fishes, and you can find out a little bit more about that project. That I'm working on. Well, I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Next week, I've got Matt Hayes on the podcast, who is one of the most widely known anglers in the country. He's done lots of angling programmes on the BBC, on Sky. He's done books. He works with tackle companies. You name it. Matt is has, has done it pretty much in UK angling, and we're going to chat a little bit about how he started his career, some of the. Ups and downs, really. It's quite an honest and open interview with him about what he's enjoyed working on and some of the stuff he hasn't enjoyed working on. So that'll be out next Tuesday. I hope you've enjoyed it. This has been the Bearded Tits Podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll catch you next time. Cheers.